Hey y'all, before we get started, we just want to let you know that the subject matter of this five-part mini-series ended up being a little more topical than we intended it to be. We started researching and writing it more than six months ago, and the script was finished just a few weeks before the coronavirus epidemic became an inescapable part of our everyday lives. The story we're about to tell you is one of hope and healing, but it's also one of hardship, illness, and loss. And while it's a story about events from the past, the parallels with our current situation are hard to ignore, and some of the topics we'll touch on, like disease, quarantines, healthcare, might be difficult or unwelcome for some listeners right now. We totally understand, and that's why we want to give you this heads up, just in case. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope that over these next five weeks, we can help make your stay-at-home time at least a little more bearable. Stay strong, Texas, and enjoy the show. It was the summer of 1889, and Tomasita Canales was dying. At first it was just a headache, but within a week she was bedridden, writhing in the throes of fever, chills, hallucinations, and agony. She was literally burning alive. Her husband, Andres, called in one of the best Tejano physicians in Corpus Christi, but after three days he'd exhausted every treatment he knew how to provide, and Tomasita's fever still refused to break. If anything, she was getting worse. Her sons, Albino and Andres Jr., raced home from school in Matamoros to be by their mother's side, but when they tried to embrace her, she recoiled at their touch. The fever's hold on her was so intense, it had made strangers of her own children. All the boys could do was watch helplessly as their mother cried out in pain, confusion, and fear until she lost consciousness altogether. The Canales family were the owners of Las Cabras Ranch one of the largest in the Rio Grande Valley, and they had the means to afford the best healthcare money could buy. But in South Texas, wealth didn't always guarantee access to care, much less a cure. I'm sorry, the doctor told them. I've done all that science has prescribed. And it was true. Tomasita was most likely suffering from yellow fever, a recurring scourge in South Texas at the time, and a disease for which there was no known cure. Andres pleaded with the doctor. Money was no object. Please, just get her to the hospital. But the closest hospital was in San Antonio, 125 miles away. The doctor's eyes fell to his feet. Don Canales, he said. She wouldn't even survive the ride to the train station. All they could do now was try to make her comfortable and say their goodbyes while there was still a chance, however small, that she might hear them. But Tomasita's mother wasn't having it with this big city doctor and his fatalist crap. She begged Andres to send a rider out to nearby Los Olmos Ranch and fetch a man named Don Pedro. Andres knew of the man. Rumors and gossip were hard to avoid in a small town. They said he was a curandero, a faith healer. They said he could perform miracles. Andres had a hard time believing that some shepherd's magic potions could cure what no doctor could. But with all other options exhausted and Tomasita's time growing short, he owed it to her, at the very least, to try. So Andres swallowed his pride, suspended his disbelief, and sent his fastest rider to fetch the so-called curandero. The Texan folk tradition of curanderismo dates back to the 16th century, when Spanish missionaries first brought Catholicism to the Americas. Over time, the teachings of the church began to fuse with the native beliefs and practices, giving rise to a unique kind of hybrid faith that was passed down through the generations. The treatments and remedies of curanderismo were steeped in ancient folklore, but it wasn't all superstition. 
In the Mayan tradition alone, they used about 400 botanical drugs for medical purposes, and over 200 of those have since been formally recognized by the U.S. Pharmacopoeia or the National Formulary. In other words, a lot of it actually works. Andres's heart sank when the writer returned to the ranch alone, but he wasn't empty-handed. The writer said that Don Pedro couldn't make it out till morning, but he sent the next best thing, his handwritten receta, recipe. It's said to bathe Tomasita in unheated water three times that night, once every three hours, and that was it. The doctor scoffed and called it, quote, a stupidus. To soak such a sick woman in cold water would sooner kill her than the fever would. He shook his head, handed the paper to Andres, and rode out for the train station. As Andres stood there, holding the receta on his quaking hands, the rational part of him knew the doctor was right. The love of his life was going to die. Only a miracle could save her now, and Andres didn't believe in miracles. But for Tomasita, he had to try. With everything he had, he would try. They carried the dying woman to the tub and did just as the receta prescribed. When the third bath was done, they tucked her gently into bed and, with a prayer, left her life in the curandero's hands. As the morning sun fell across her face, Tomasita Canales opened her eyes. Albino, she cried. Andres. Her sons ran to her side and immediately saw the recognition and love in their mother's eyes. They threw their arms around her, and with newfound strength, she squeezed them tight. The fever, the chills, the pain, all of it was gone, like magic. As if on cue, Andres spotted a man in black riding up to the ranch. His clothes and shoes were, quote, those of the poorest Mexican peon, and his shoulders were draped in a ragged black cape. Only a long white beard was visible beneath the shadow of his wide-brim hat. Well, that and the scar, of course. A long, mean one cut clean across the bridge of his nose. He was unmistakable, even to a stranger at a distance. Don Pedro Jaramillo, the healer of Los Olmos. Andres ushered the man up to the bedroom where Tomasita waited, awake, alert, and excited to embrace the mysterious man who'd saved her life. She insisted on paying him something, anything, but he just smiled politely and raised his hand in refusal. He'd already been paid in full by her health and happiness, he told her, and besides, he didn't deserve any credit. It was God who'd healed her, and she had no one else to thank. With that, he tipped his big black hat and rode away. Tomasita Canale soon made a full recovery and would go on to live in good health with her husband and family for another 38 years. This wasn't the first time Don Pedro had cured what no doctor could, and it was far from the last. A few years later, the San Antonio Daily Express did a write-up on the quote, queer old man who performed such wonderful cures in such mysterious ways. They claimed no one knew where he lived or where he came from, that he rarely spoke, only traveled by night, and was feared and worshipped by every Indian who'd seen him pass. None of it was true, of course, but it's not surprising. The Curandero's reputation long preceded him in every town he visited, and his miracles were written into folklore before he'd even rode out again. He was, quite literally, a living legend. And if there was any truth to the rumors and gossip of a small town, the Curandero arrived in Texas on the lam, having staged a seemingly impossible escape from a Mexican prison. Or maybe they just didn't have enough evidence to hold him. After all, the alleged charge was an archaic and unusual one, even for the time. The practice of brujeria. Don Pedro Jaramillo, they said, was a wizard. I'm Ryan Sheffield. And I'm Brad Dewar. And this is Texarkana. Yeah.
Pedro Jaramillo was born into poverty in Guadalajara around 1829, but he wouldn't find his way into the historical record till 52 years later, when his mother fell gravely ill. Every night, he prayed for God to spare her. He begged, bargained, and pleaded, but with every passing day, her condition only got worse. It was like God wasn't hearing him, or worse, maybe he was. Pedro had lived his entire life by the word, as best as anyone could be expected to anyway tending to the family farm and caring for his mother, the only person he had left in the world. As loath as he was to think it, much less speak it aloud, it just wasn't fair. It was cruel, wrong. So one night, Pedro Jaramillo refused to pray. Instead, with fists clenched and eyes skyward, he made a vow. If his prayers were to go unanswered, if God were to take her away from him, he'd leave Mexico and he'd never look back. He'd be forsaken, a man without a home. But God, again refused to hear him, or worse. In 1881, Pedro Jaramillo buried his mother, turned his back on Mexico, his home, and his God, and rode north for Texas. 700 miles is a long journey for anyone, to say nothing of a man rudderless and alone. So when he came upon a gang of liquor smugglers, he jumped at the opportunity for some companionship. The smugglers were bound for the border with a cartload of tequila and mezcal in tow, and Pedro was welcome to tag along if he could keep up. It was a special delivery for an annual fiesta hosted by some important clients up in the Texas Rio Grande Valley, and the gang had to move fast if they were gonna make it on time. We don't like to read too much into coincidence, but their clients just happened to be Andres and Tomasita Canales, eight years, almost to the day, before Don Pedro's miracle. And the party they were hosting just happened to be a celebration of El Festival de San Juan Batista, a Catholic holiday commemorating John's baptism and the redemptive healing powers of water. But anyway, on June 24, 1881, Don Pedro Jaramillo parted ways with the smugglers somewhere between the Rio Grande and Nueces rivers, where he instantly fell in love with the land and people of Texas, his new home. He built himself a modest thatched hut on the banks of the Los Olmos Creek, settling into a small Tejano community near modern-day Falfarias. He took a job as a ranch hand, earning a monthly salary of just $2 and a bushel of corn, Adjusted for 2020 inflation, that's the equivalent of about 50 bucks per month. Needless to say, he was extremely poor, but that suited him just fine. Poverty was all he'd ever known, and by all accounts, it was all he ever cared to know. Despite his lifetime of experience on horseback, Pedro was never much of a rider. And one day, while tending sheep at the ranch, he caught a tree branch to the face, knocking him clean off the saddle and shattering his nose. Dazed and bleeding, he dragged himself to the closest puddle of water, scooped up a handful of mud, and smeared it over his broken nose. He didn't know what compelled him to do it, it was just gut instinct. But within seconds, the pain was gone. The next day, he repeated the ritual again, just lying there on the ground for hours, basking in the cool, wet mud. By the time he'd washed his face clean at the end of the third day, his nose had completely healed. Except, of course, for the scar. Long, mean, and unmistakable. That night, Pedro had a dream that was too real to have been a dream. A voice rang out from above, or within, everywhere, and told him he'd been blessed with a divine gift, what they called in Mexico a don, the supernatural power to heal others as he himself had been healed. That scar on his nose was the mark of his gift, and all who needed him would know him by it. 
even a stranger at a distance. But Pedro's dom came with a catch. It could only be used in the service of God. If he were ever to use his power for profit or selfish gain, he would lose it forever, and his soul along with it. Pedro Jaramillo had been tasked, and his work had already begun. His boss at the ranch was sick, the voice told him, and it was up to Pedro to cure what no doctor could. When he woke the next morning, he went straight to his boss's quarters, and sure enough, he'd fallen deathly ill during the night. Pedro gave the man his receta, a cold bath once a day for the next three days. And again, it was just a gut instinct, the first thing that popped into his head. But again, it worked. So he started small, tending to his neighbors and anyone who happened to be passing through town. But word of the shepherd's miracles spread fast and far. And soon, hundreds of people from all over the state were making the pilgrimage out to his little thatched hut by the creek, hoping for the cure that medical science couldn't or wouldn't provide. Soon, the demand for his services had grown so large that he had to hire an assistant just to manage the crowds. The patients were sent into the hut one at a time, where they'd find Don Pedro waiting for them behind his kitchen table. They'd tell him about their affliction, or, as some claimed, he just knew before they even uttered a word. And then he'd give them his receta, sometimes spoken, oftentimes scrawled on a tiny scrap of paper. Whenever a grateful patient offered the curandero some kind of payment, whatever little they had, he always refused it. Any debt they owed, he told them, was to God. Sometimes they insisted or just dropped a coin on the table when they left, and Don Pedro put every cent of it back into the community to help those who needed it most. The recetas were fairly easy to follow and kinda weird. In the case of a woman with epilepsy, Don Pedro told her to stand outside, look up at the sky, and exclaim, in the name of God, then drink a cold glass of water. For nosebleeds, he recommended drinking lukewarm water at nighttime for seven days, using only your left hand to hold the glass, or for more extreme cases, wearing clean clothes for nine days straight, then pouring a bucket of water over your head before going to bed fully dressed and soaking wet. He once allegedly cured a paraplegic by throwing him into a creek and forcing him to swim his way out four times. And while the vast majority of the recetas involved water or mud, he'd occasionally prescribe more experimental treatments, like putting garlic in your shoes or drinking copious amounts of whiskey. As unorthodox as his treatments might seem, patients almost universally claimed that they actually worked. And as his popularity grew, he began making trips on horseback throughout the southern half of the state, paying house calls to those who didn't have the means or the ability to come to him. It's important to note that nearly 90% of people living in the Rio Grande Valley at that time were ethnic Mexicans, most of whom were poor and scattered throughout rural areas. Physicians, on the other hand, were predominantly white, clustered in urban areas and becoming increasingly more expensive. According to some sources we found, there was only one licensed physician serving a region that stretched 150 miles in every direction from Don Pedro's Creekside Hut. Sure, rubbing olive oil on your feet probably won't cure your gout, but for a lot of people living in the Texas borderlands, it was the closest thing to real healthcare they would ever get. And the simple feeling of just being cared for, listened to, treated like an actual human being worthy of life and health, was a kind of medicine unto itself. In the face of utter helplessness and despair, sometimes just the smallest dose of hope and humanity can truly make the difference between a lie and a miracle. In the latter half of the 1800s, superstition and medical science were at a strange intersection. The old ways were dying out as new discoveries and advancements rendered their equivalent folk remedies obsolete. But the science wasn't quite there yet. And even when it was, widespread acceptance was slow to catch on. And of course, not everyone could afford it. 
As the historical trajectories of these two practices crossed, science and superstition found themselves on a more or less equal playing field, at times complementary, always in competition, and sometimes one and the same. The 19th century was haunted by recurring outbreaks of diseases humanity didn't have the technology to properly treat or cure. Devastating epidemics of cholera and other plagues ravaged the Gulf states for years at a time, killing tens of thousands of people. Yellow fever hit South Texas especially hard. Galveston endured at least nine major epidemics. In the summer of 1839, it killed more than a twelfth of all Houstonians. Less than 30 years later, 60% of the city's entire population became infected. Thousands died, including Margaret Lee Houston, the widow of the city's namesake. Yellow fever takes three to six days to incubate, and since the majority of people infected with it are just asymptomatic carriers, it tends to spread fast. For those who do experience symptoms, it's like having three days of the flu, and most people usually recover fully after that. But 15% of them aren't so lucky. Within 24 hours, the fever comes back with a vengeance, accompanied by crippling pain and bleeding from the mouth, nose, rectum, and eyes. Soon the intestines fail, and the internal bleeding mixes with the stomach acid, causing the victim to puke up what people at the time called the black vomit, a grotesque mixture of bile and blood clots. The kidneys fail about 48 hours later, and then jaundice sets in, causing the skin and eyes to turn the sickly shade of yellow that gives the disease its name. The infected person is soon overcome by horrifying bouts of delirium that can last for upwards of a week before death finally, mercifully, sets them free. Yellow fever first came to America on ships bringing enslaved Africans to the Gulf Coast, and it was reintroduced every summer by merchant vessels carrying off the sugar and returning with even more slaves to farm it. It wasn't until the 1880s that transmission of the disease was finally linked to mosquito bites. And even then, it would take another 10 to 20 years for that scientific breakthrough to translate into common knowledge. Germ theory, at least as we understand it today, was still a very new concept, and the average person either couldn't wrap their head around it or didn't believe it, if they'd even heard of it at all. Most people at the time, scientists included, thought the primary cause of illness was something called miasma, the poisonous vapors or fog made from the stench of stagnant water, rotting trash, and shallow graves. The great stink, as it was sometimes called, didn't just ride the wind, it literally infected it, turning it bad, and it would do the same to anyone who had the misfortune of breathing it in. Whether they know it or not, it's the reason superstitious folks still hold their breath when they walk past a graveyard. It's maybe not as cool as making the dead jealous or whatever, so don't ruin it for them. As science advanced, the theory had to be retrofitted to sound more modern and technical, invoking sanitation and particles and whatnot. But as late as the 1880s, folks still believed miasma was a malevolent supernatural force that slunk out of graveyards at night to infect the world with everything from cholera to obesity. In 1849, scientist and miasma skeptic Dr. John Snow, who did in fact know something, was the first to recommend filtration and the boiling of water. And that was huge. A year later, a sanitation engineer and miasma believer from London, Edwin Chadwick, declared that, quote, all smell is disease, and proposed detailed reforms to improve sewer systems, household plumbing, and urban drainage. Within the next few years, his ideas were implemented throughout England and the US. It's why farmers stopped using human feces as fertilizer, and it was a major factor in the mainstream acceptance of cremation for the disposal of bodies. 
The miasma theory may have been completely bunk, but the reforms it inspired dramatically reduced the infection rates of deadly diseases, saving thousands of lives and laying the foundation for our modern sanitation infrastructure. If you use a toilet instead of an outhouse or, you know, live past the age of 40, you can probably thank imaginary evil nighttime smells. I know I do. But even with all the sanitation improvements, miasma theory still lingered for a few decades in the popular consciousness as the plagues kept on coming. South Texans would close their windows and doors every night when the sun went down, believing it was better to suffer the dank humidity and extreme heat than to catch yellow death from the poisoned night air. Fear all but shut down commerce during the summer months, devastating the economy on a near annual basis. Houstonians were afraid to even open their mail without first smoking the letters over the fireplace for hours at a time. Others took to burning barrels of tar outside their homes all night, every night believing that the best way to neutralize supernatural poison gas was to fill the air with actual poison gas. As things continued to spiral out of control, the Houston government instituted a mandatory quarantine enforced at gunpoint by city police. Hospital workers and citizens alike were instructed to burn any and all clothing or bed sheets potentially contaminated by the infected or the dead. Other Gulf Coast and South Texas cities started doing the same and racial minorities, especially Hispanics, became prime targets for arrest and detainment. That's why Andres and Tomasita explicitly sought out Tejano doctors. They were terrified that their family might be forced into a quarantine, and they made the right choice. At a time when the scientific treatment for fever was just sweating it out, the curanderos receta of drinking fluids and taking cold baths was actually kinda groundbreaking. Don Pedro was one of many healers at the time who embraced the practice of hydrotherapy, water as medicine. Drinking it or bathing in it at certain times, in certain quantities, from certain sources. It wasn't a new idea either. Records of so-called water cures date back as far as Hippocrates, the father of medicine and the namesake of the Hippocratic Oath. So not exactly a quack. The practice saw its first resurgence in the 1600s when a doctor named Thomas Sydenham reintroduced it to Britain as a more palatable alternative to bloodletting. But in the end, draining sick people of their white blood cells somehow won out and hydrotherapy fell back into obscurity. At least until the early part of the 19th century, when pretty much the entire Western world decided to get, like, way into ghosts. To be continued. Tex Arcana is written and produced by us, Ryan Sheffield and Brad Dewar, recorded here in beautiful Denton, Texas. Home of the Bearded Monk, Armadillo Aleworks, New York Subhub, Cool Beans, Loco Cafe, Greenhouse, Juicy Pig Barbecue, Midway Mart, J&J's Pizza, 940's, Mulberry Street Cantina, Applejack's Liquor, Dusty's Bar and Grill, TJ's Pizza, Eskimo Hut, and dozens of other local businesses that are staying open right now to provide curbside and takeout. They need our support now more than ever. They're the beating heart of our town. So Denton, while we weather this crisis together, let's show them just how much they mean to us. Our theme music and this episode's outro song are by Whiskey Folk Ramblers. They're one of our uh, local favorites. Uh, we're good friends with them. Um, but now might be a good time for any of y'all listening to reach out to your local artists and musicians and uh, service industry workers and see if they need any help, you know, financially, emotionally, whatever you can offer. All we've got is each other. Additional music by Less Than One, available at freemusicarchive.org. We'll be back next Friday with part two. In the meantime, please take care of each other. Thanks for listening, y'all. Stay home. <laughs> <laughs>